Turn, if you would, to the book of Matthew, chapter 16. We are continuing in our series of questions that Jesus asked. And today we have a, a, a very important question. In fact, it may be the most important question that Jesus asked. It is also a question, the answer of which has divided uh, the Christian church for the last 2,000 years. Well, at least since the Reformation. So we'll get into all of that. Starting in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? It's a simple question. Who do the people say the Son of Man is? The Son of Man is obviously referring to himself. It is a title that uh, we see in the Old Testament, and it talks about the humanity of Christ. And he is referring to himself, and he's asking the disciples who the crowd say that he is. To get us a little running start into the context here, at the beginning of the chapter, the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, show us a sign. And basically Jesus said, I'm tired of showing you signs. The only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. And then he leaves that group, and he's off with his disciples, and he says, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. And they think he's talking about food, which he's not. He's talking about the teachings of the Pharisees. So over there we have the Pharisees who have been questioning who Jesus is. Jesus has been out teaching. He has been out preaching. He's been out healing. And he wants to know, who do the people say that I am? Caesarea Philippi is well in the north. It's up, actually up north uh, past Galilee. It's at the bottom of the mountain. There's actually another Caesarea that's down on the coast. That's not this one. This is the one that's up in the north. Who do the people say that I am? They replied, the disciples. Some, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. Now, what can we see from this list? Come on, this is easy. They're a bunch of dead guys, okay? The people believed that Jesus was one of these great prophets reincarnated and brought back to spread God's word to the people. I've always been curious about the John the Baptist one because John the Baptist was alive when Jesus was alive, so what happened? I, I don't know. It's a, it's, it's a strange part of reincarnation if, if he's John the Baptist. But notice a couple of things. First off, these are all good people. Once again, we're not talking about who do the Pharisees say that I am. We already know who the Pharisees think that Jesus is. They think he is Satan, Beelzebub. That's what they were accusing him of, if you remember our lesson several weeks ago. This man is casting out demons by Beelzebub. But we're not asking what the Pharisees think. We're asking what the people think. The people have been impressed. The people have been impressed with Jesus, and they're convinced that he is one of these prophets that has returned. Jeremiah, Elijah. There are Old Testament prophecies that said Elijah will come to proclaim the coming Messiah. So this kind of makes sense, right? He is one of these good guys. But, no. His question is, did the Jews believe in reincarnation? And the answer is no. What they believed is that maybe the spirit of Elijah would be reborn and come back, or God would work some miraculous event. They did not believe in general reincarnation, where every person is reincarnated as something else based on the goodness or badness of their life, which is a more Eastern philosophy. But God could bring back one of the Old Testament prophets if God wanted to. It would be a miraculous event not a normal event, okay? 
So he then turns once again to the disciples and he asks them the definitive question. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Okay? Disciples, you've been living with me. You've been traveling with me. You've been hearing my teachings. You've been seeing my miracles. What about you? What do you think, who do you think that I am? If there is a question that is of utmost importance in our world today, the world a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, almost two thousand years ago when this was spoken, the question is, who is Jesus? If you were to walk down the street today and ask people, who do you think Jesus is? What kind of answers do you think you would get? Pardon? Random? Pardon? A prophet? Pardon? A savior? A teacher? A wise man? A philosopher? An all-round great guy? A wacko? A superstar? Sounds like a musical. Oh, wait. (laughs) Shall I sing the song? Jesus Christ, superstar. Pardon? A liar? Why would you call him a liar? (laughs) Did you hear her comment? People say that he's a liar or a lunatic. That is actually usually taken from uh, C.S. Lewis, an argument he has about who Jesus is. And I have mentioned it in here before, but I don't know if I've ever actually told you the entire argument. It's simply this. There are lots of people who want to say Jesus was a great teacher, and that's all he is. Um, I had a professor one time, and she really liked Jesus. Jesus was like Socrates. Both people teaching great things and killed for their for doing it. And so C.S. Lewis uh, presents the argument, and I actually think he borrowed it from somebody else. It's not that new, which basically says this. Jesus is one of three things. He is either a liar or he is a lunatic or he is the Lord. He cannot be just a great teacher. Why not? He cannot be just a great teacher because Jesus said he was the Son of God. Now, if there is no God and I tell you that I'm the Son of God, I am a wacko. As Jesus says, it's on, you know, as C.S. Lewis says, it's on par with someone who says, I'm a poached egg. You wouldn't say, well, he's a great teacher, in spite of the fact that he thinks he's a poached egg. You would think he was crazy. So either Jesus knew that he was not the Son of God, but said so anyway, in which case he is a liar. Or he really believed he was the Son of God, when we all know that's not possible, in which case he's a lunatic. Or he said he was the Son of God, and he is the Son of God, in which case he is the Lord of all. Those are the only three possible answers. Now, modern secular scholars would say, well, if you look at the New Testament, all those places where he talks about being the Son of God, those were added later by Christians. Jesus didn't really say that. But all they're doing is they're taking their modern philosophies and putting it back on a text because they don't like the answer. I've talked in here before about the pink letter edition of the Bible, right? Where the scholars get together and they vote. Did Jesus say this or not? If he said it, they mark it in red. If he didn't say it, they mark it in black. And if there's a division in the vote, it's some shade of pink. And of course, Jesus didn't say he was the Son of God. So they can preserve the idea 
that he's a great teacher while dismissing the idea that he is, in fact, the Son of God. But we have no valid reason to do that other than doing violence to the text because we don't like the answer. Jesus taught he was the Son of God. He was the Messiah. We saw this last week when he told the Samaritan woman after she had said the Messiah is going to come and explain all this to us and Jesus told her directly I am that person I am the Christ and she was astounded so the question of who Jesus is is a question that still confounds many people today there are Christian churches in this city who would argue about who Jesus is. There are pastors in pulpits today in this country who would question who Jesus is, or I guess I should say who Jesus was, because he's dead. He's like Socrates. He's like the other great teachers. He's dead and gone. Everyone has an opinion about who Jesus is. Bertrand Russell, the secular uh, atheist, he said uh, Jesus was a wicked man because of his discussions of hell and etc. He was, in fact, not a good teacher. He was, in fact, a wicked man. The Muslims today will say that Jesus was a prophet. He was a good guy. It's the Christians who have taken the message of Jesus, corrupted it, and came up with this, he's the God thing. Who is Jesus is the definitive question that we have to address if we're going to understand the Bible, if we're going to understand the Christian life, and if, in fact, we are going to receive salvation. So, Jesus has asked the disciples, who do the people say that I am? And now he asks the disciples directly, who do you think that I am? Simon Peter, verse 16. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ, that is the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not received to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven." You get the feeling that Jesus liked Peter's answer. Peter gave the right answer. You are the Christ, the one sent by God, and you are, in fact, the Son of the living God. This is who Jesus is, who Jesus was, and who Jesus will always be. Without this statement... Christianity does not exist. We need to understand that. There are those who would have us believe that after the crucifixion, the disciples got together amongst themselves and decided we're going to create a religion to remember the teachings of Jesus Christ because he was a great guy. Unfortunately, The biblical record doesn't support that. The biblical record says that the disciples fled because they were terrified. It was only with the resurrection and the reality that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God, that the apostles were empowered to go and spread the gospel to the known world of the time. You are the Christ the son of the living God. That is the right answer. So Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, 
For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Easy question. You ready for this? How did Peter know who Jesus was? Come on, this is real, real easy. God told him. There was no human being around to convince Peter that Jesus was the Son of God. God had to reveal it to him. Let's talk about salvation in general. From whom does salvation come? God. When God, when the Holy Spirit moves in a human being's heart and reveals to them the reality of who Jesus is, was, and what he has done for them, salvation can occur. Notice what Jesus is not saying to Peter. Peter, you are so clever, you figured it out. Peter, you get a hundred on the test because you were able to figure out what those bozos down the street couldn't figure out. Peter, you are my apostle because you're the smartest guy out there. No. We have no indication that Peter was the smartest guy out there. Okay? We don't have any idea what his IQ was, but he wasn't the smartest guy out there. We do know that God revealed the truth to him. God revealed to Peter the reality of who Christ was. Back to the earlier question. Who do the people say that I am? Well, they thought he was a great teacher. Why? Because they had seen him and he was a great teacher. Now, they had also seen the miracles. They also had the Old Testament prophecy that said the Messiah is going to come and he's going to heal the blind, cure the sick, raise the dead, etc., etc., but they hadn't put it all together. The Spirit had not revealed it all to them. And in fact, at the very end of this lesson, Jesus is going to tell the disciples, don't tell the people this yet. We'll talk about that in just a moment. So how did Peter know that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God? Because God revealed it to him. Not because he was cleverer than anybody else. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Blessed are you, fortunate, happy are you, because you have the truth. In our society today, in our world today, we count a lot of people happy. People are happy when they have wealth when they have nice things, when they have more of something than somebody else does. All kinds of things in our society make us declare someone to be happy. But Christ is telling Peter, you are happy because you understand the truth. Peter's life is going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult up until the time that he is executed for believing in Christ. But you know what? It doesn't matter to Peter. Because Peter is blessed because Peter understands who the Christ is. It was revealed to him by God and he understands. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this has not been revealed to you by man, but by the fa my Father in heaven. And here it comes. Y'all ready for this? And I tell you that you are Peter. What does Peter mean? Rock. Actually, it means a small rock. It is a masculine noun. And on this rock, I will build my church. What in the world does this mean? There have been great scholars who have great disagreements about what the rock is upon which the church is going to be built. And I am pretty sure that I am not going to convince you one way or the other unless you're already convinced. 
There are three possible answers to who or what the rock is upon which the church is going to be built. And they are these. The rock is Peter himself. Upon this rock, Peter, and you know your name is Rock, Peter? Upon this rock, I will build my church. Peter, as the head of the apostles, as the first bishop of the church of Rome, becomes the head of the church. And if you are a Roman Catholic today, well, if you're a Roman Catholic, you're probably not here. But if you were a Roman Catholic, that is the answer. Jesus is demonstrating to the rest of the apostles and demonstrating to the church throughout history that Peter is the rock upon which the church is going to stand or fall. There are some problems with that idea. Namely, we really have no indication that Peter was the head of the apostles. We really don't. He was a member of the apostles. He did great things. But when you get around to the Jerusalem council later, you probably get the idea that James is the head of the group. Eh, who knows? There really isn't this hierarchy. Jesus never turned to the apostles and said, Guys, do what Peter tells you to do. We don't ever see that. And in fact, Paul, in the book of Galatians, chastises Peter for abandoning the truth regarding bringing Gentiles into the Christian community. We really have no indication anywhere else in Scripture that Peter was meant to be the main guy. We have no indication in Scripture that the bishop of the Church of Rome was supposed to be the main guy. There were some members of the uh, Reformation who wanted to argue whether Peter had ever gone to Rome in the first place. He probably did. Okay? But even if he did, what does that do to make Peter, as the bishop of Rome, the foundation upon which the church is built? My opinion, and this is labeled opinion, is that the Roman Empire was falling apart and there were those in the church who wanted to mimic the hierarchy of the Roman Empire and there was a single leader of the Roman Empire, so there needed to be a single leader of the church. The center of the empire was Rome. The center of the church should be Rome. Therefore, the bishop of Rome was given primacy over the rest of the bishops, and they went backwards to Peter to establish the basis of this primacy of the church of Rome. I don't really believe it's true. Obviously, I'm not a Roman Catholic. But that is an interpretation. And I might add, there are brilliant Roman Catholic scholars who will defend that position today. My belief is that if you wanted to believe in the primacy of the Bishop of Rome, then yes, you could get some indicator in this passage, but if you started from this passage, you couldn't get to the, to the other end. You see what I'm saying? You could use it as an example, but it isn't definitive. It doesn't have to be that way. But that's one possible answer. Second possible answer. What Jesus was referring to when he said upon this rock is the confession that, G that Peter had made. Peter, Petros, small rock. Upon this rock, bigger rock, and I might add feminine noun. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Peter, you, speaking for the apostles, have given the true confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And upon that confession... 
I will build my church. Those who confess that Jesus is Lord will be the church of Christ. I like this answer. Okay? Let's think about it in just a moment. The third possible answer is that it is referring to the general teachings of Christ. It is referring to Christ himself. We see this throughout Scripture where Christ is mentioned as the cornerstone, the rock, etc. So, between the rock being Christ himself, and we know that Christ is the foundation, the cornerstone of the church, or it is the confession of those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God, between those two, I think you can get a good and valid answer. Peter, while not being the top dog of all the apostles, still was credited with giving the right answer. He did, in fact, confess that Jesus Christ is the Christ, and he is the Son of the living God. And upon that confession, all who make that confession will form the church. Any questions? Come on, ask a question. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Here's another one of those easy questions. You ready for this? Who is going to build the church? Jesus Christ. Whose church is it? Jesus Christ. Remember that there have been a long tradition of pastors and etc. who sometime decided that a particular congregation is theirs and they have some right or claim to it, and they should be treated accordingly. We do not see that in the Scripture. Christ is not building somebody else's church. Christ is building Christ's church. He is the source behind it. He is the foundation behind it, and it belongs to him. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The gates of hell itself will not stand against the church. What do we learn from this? First off, we learn that hell does in fact exist. Secondly, we learn that there is in fact a war going on. That's the third point. You're getting ahead of me. Many times, many times, we as 21st century Americans are shocked by the idea that there is a spiritual war going on. We have developed this idea that if we're nice, they'll be nice, everybody will get along. Ultimately, everybody is not going to get along. Ultimately, there is going to be a division between sheep and goats, to use the analogy of the Scripture. What is the criteria for that division? Come on, this is easy. Who do you say that I am? Who do you think Jesus is? will be the dividing line. If you believe that he is a great guy, if you believe he's the devil incarnate, it doesn't matter. It's the wrong answer. There are those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that group is going to be at war with those who disagree with it. Now, we are to be nice. We're not to poke people in the eye. But we have to accept the fact that the mere fact that we believe Jesus is the Son of God is going to provoke warfare in the spiritual realm. And that warfare in the spiritual realm folds over into warfare 
into the physical world in which we live. We should not be shocked that the warfare exists. Now, we are told in Scripture, as much as it is possible, get along with everybody. But there is the reality that as much as it is possible, there are some people with whom you will not get along because of our confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So we learn that there is, in fact, a hell. There is, in fact, a warfare going on. But the other thing to remember is, now, Jim, we win. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Ultimately, and I will use the word ultimately, the church is going to win. Does that mean there's not going to be martyrs? No, there's going to be martyrs. You have a hard time reading church history and saying that the life of the believer is a nice, rosy road. Individual churches will rise. Individual churches can fall into temptation, can fall into sin, can fall into heresy, and fall away. Individual churches can do a lot of things. But ultimately, the church that is Christ-built, the church that is owned by Christ, the church that is built on the confession that Jesus is the Son of the living God, that church is going to win. And we should have great confidence in it. We should have the confidence that ultimately right will prevail. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What does that mean? Pardon? There's lots of books written on it. If I am a good Roman Catholic, and if I believe that the rock upon which the church was built was Peter himself, then I believe that Peter was given the authority as the vicar of Christ. Peter was given the keys to, in essence, determine who does and doesn't go to heaven because he is the controller of the gospel. He is the vicar of Christ on earth. We know that the idea of keys carries with it the symbol, the picture of authority. Go ahead. I mean, even the, even the Roman Catholic Church, if they believe, you know, they do believe that Peter was the, the top dog of the disciples, even they recognize that he was a, a human being, okay? Um, no, it was, it, was, it was a sin. I mean, it was, a, you know, giving in under pressure. His question was, how do they deal with the fact that, G, uh, that Peter denied Christ, you know, the whole idea of the cock crowing and all of that stuff? They still recognize that he was a human being. And in the same way that they recognize that the Pope is a human being today. Nobody claims that every word that comes out of the mouth of the Pope is the inerrant word of God. What they do believe is that he can speak ex cathedra in the voice of Christ on earth today when he chooses to. To deny him is pretty powerful. After the 11th century A.D., in fact, they didn't even declare him infallible until the, the 19th century, was it? it? It was much later, yeah. It was a developing doctrine, as they would say. 
Anyway, that's a good point. But if you're a Roman Catholic, you believe the keys were given to Peter, and Peter controls the destiny of men as the vicar of Christ. We know that the symbol of keys symbolizes power and authority. If I was the owner of an estate, I would give the keys of that estate to a trusted steward who would manage the property on my behalf. And their possession of the keys was the sign of their authority. We actually had a discussion at uh, dinner the other day about the whole idea of giving someone the keys to the city because of that little controversy in Dallas that we won't get into. And my, one of my kids goes, but what lock does that open? <laughs> I said, the key's this big, and I don't think it opens anything. It is a symbolic gesture, but it is symbolic because at one time it meant something. If I give you the keys to my estate, I am trusting you to manage my estate for me and with my desires and goals in mind. Once again, am I giving, is Christ giving those keys to Peter and through apostolic succession to all those who would follow? Or is Christ giving that authority to the church? And I believe that he is giving that authority to the church. What is that authority? It is the authority to teach the gospel. It is the authority to spread the word of God to the corners of the world. It is also the authority to discipline believers. <gasps> kind of odd. We actually talked about this when we went through 1 Corinthians. Do you remember the discussion in 1 Corinthians about the individual who was living with his stepmother and Paul says that was a really bad thing. You shouldn't have done it. You needed to discipline him. He needed to be removed. And Paul says, you're not here to judge those outside the church. The fact that the people outside the church act like people outside the church shouldn't, shouldn't surprise us. But when people are inside the church and live like those outside the church, and in fact Paul says in this particular case, this individual was doing something that even the pagans wouldn't do, but when someone inside the church is living like someone outside the church, the church is obligated to discipline the members of the congregation. Now, does the church have the authority to save someone or condemn someone to hell? And the answer is no. Christ is going to take care of that problem. Christ is going to deal with that issue. The church is given the authority to discipline individuals on the basis of the Scripture. The Scripture says these are the things that ought to be done or these are the things that ought not to be done. And we as a church collectively, not as individuals, but we as a church collectively are to judge and make decisions based on that Scripture. So, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We need to understand the magnitude of that statement. This isn't some trivial thing. Once again, back to the picture a while ago. You are the steward of the master's property. The master gives you the keys. That is not a trivial event. That is a major event. That is a major recognition of the master's trust in you. And it is a major recognition of your responsibility to faithfully fulfill the duty that God has put upon you. We sometimes think that I become a believer, I've got my fire insurance, I'm going to heaven when I die, I want to live a little bit better life than those around me so that I can stand up in public and not be too embarrassed. And that's about it. No. God has given us 
the keys to the kingdom. We are collectively the steward of the kingdom. We are to faithfully do the job that God has outlined that we are to do. We are to share the gospel. We are to share the gospel in our words. We are to share the gospel in our lives as we interact with other people. That's how we are supposed to live because we have the awesome responsibility of holding the keys to the kingdom. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This verse is easy if you want to be a good Roman Catholic because it means that guy over there, Pope Benedict XII, is that who we're up to? Pope Benedict, that's his job. I'm off the hook. It's easy. He's the priest is given authority through the apostolic succession to forgive sins. And so he does so. But if I don't believe that Pope Benedict is the vicar of Christ, and I might add, I have nothing against Pope Benedict. I've read his books. He's a smart guy, okay? If I don't believe that, if I believe what we saw in 1 Corinthians and we see later in he if I believe that you and I are the priest, remember our discussion last week and the week before about you and I being the temple that Christ is building up? If I believe that, then what this is verse is telling me is in some form or fashion, my actions have eternal consequences. That's scary. I would much rather pawn that off on the Pope or pawn that off on Pastor Ted or pawn it off on some paid minister instead of recognizing the fact that we collectively we who confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that we collectively hold the authority, that we have responsibility, and that our actions have eternal consequences. We have spiritual forces that are standing behind us and helping us, guiding us, protecting us, as we live our lives today. That's kind of scary. It's an awesome responsibility. And you know what? We, as 21st century Americans, don't like responsibility. We like somebody else having it. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. You're right, I didn't. Who knows? Her question is that I didn't, well, her observation was that I did not give specific meaning to the word bind and loose. And um, once again, there's lots of discussion. There's lots of controversy. I'm not sure I know the answer to that question. That's why I gave the generic answer of, in some form or fashion, our actions do have eternal consequences. What it probably means is that when I, as a believer, am presenting the gospel, when I am presenting the gospel faithfully, that gospel can bind people or that gospel can loose people from their sins. Eternal consequences. Now, we know that it is not me doing it. It is the gospel. It is Christ working through me. 
But we also know from this passage and others that God has given us the responsibility and the privilege of doing that. So if I go out and I present the gospel to someone and they respond favorably to that gospel, they are freed, they are loosed from their sins eternally. And that is a great thing. The angels rejoice, I rejoice, the church rejoices. When they refuse the gospel, when they are militantly against the gospel, they are tightening those bonds that hold them to their sin. And we don't like that. It's like Jesus, when talking to the disciples early on, earlier on, remember he sent them out in pairs, and he said, you know, go to the villages, go to the towns, and if they hear the gospel, that's great. If they don't hear the gospel, shake the dirt off your shoes and move on. That shaking the dirt off their shoes is a sign, I have done my job. I am the watchman on the wall. I have presented the gospel. I have told you of impending doom. And you have rejected it. You are loosed or you are bound eternally. It does not mean that I am doing it. I am working for Christ in his church spreading his gospel, and I am the instrument of his power. I am the steward. I have been given the keys. It doesn't mean that I'm the master. It simply means I've been given the keys. I've been given, delegated the authority. I've been delegated the authority to share the gospel. It is an awesome responsibility. It scares the bejeebers out of us sometimes. When we think about the fact we are not called to be Christians to go sit in an easy chair. And there's nothing wrong with sitting in an easy chair. But if that's all you're doing, in what sense are you a steward of the keys of the kingdom of God? Yes. No. I think it, I think it applies to uh, the discipline of the church, etc. I think it's much broader. It's as we take the word of God in its entirety and present it to the world. But that gets a lot more complicated and uh, it gets harder even. Go ahead. Absorbing the spirit of the age. Her comment was, she heard a statistic this morning, that 57% of evangelical Christians do not believe that Jesus is the only way of getting to heaven. They are self-proclaimed. I mean, the, one, of, one of the hard things taking any survey is determining who the evangelical Christians are and who's... And, um, uh, the, the pollsters have a series of tests they use. You know, they go to church umpteen times a month or something. There's, there is a set of criteria they use, but it is, I mean, by their own admission, it's difficult. Mm -hmm. The non-believers are influencing the believers to accept a pluralism that we do not find in the scripture. We want to believe. We want to be nice. I mean, let's face it. We do want to be nice. We don't want to walk up to the person on the street and say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or you're going to hell. And I'm not sure you should in that form and fashion. But you need to believe that that person on the street is going to hell without the Lord Jesus Christ. Put it on your back. Yes. Martin Luther was a smart guy, yeah.
I mean, John Huss said the same thing. John Huss just got killed for it. Martin Luther at least had a German uh, prince that wanted to protect him to poke the eye. In the anyway, that's a whole different story. I doubt it. That is a true statement. It is the first hurdle, if you will. Right. Yeah. If you believe that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ. And what does that mean? He is the Christ. He was sent by God for the deliverance of our sins. And you accept that and you apply that to your particular life. And you are saved. And that is the the dividing line. I mean, that's a whole long discussion. Yes, Joy, you're just dying to say something. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It has eternal consequences. gives us the eternal confidence that when we share the gospel that it does in fact it does in fact have power it is it will accomplish what the scripture says it will accomplish it matters well we're out of time we didn't ask you the final question the final question was why did Jesus tell the disciples not to tell people Jesus had a plan God had a plan and that plan was heading toward Calvary After the resurrection, after the resurrection, the disciples came back together. This scattered flock came back together with a power that was undeniable. We see in the first chapters of Acts, Peter standing in public saying, Jesus, who was crucified and who was resurrected, is the Son of God. That is not an instruction for us today. We are not to not say it. We are to shout it from the rooftops that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that you would work in all of our lives so that the reality of who Christ is would not just be a mental assent but would be the rock upon which we build our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.